Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest today Barry Kester, who is the author of a fascinating and extraordinary new book that I literally could not put down. And that book is titled Round in Circles, the story of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. I thought I knew a lot about Carousel, and in fact, Albert Evans and I have previously devoted several episodes of this podcast to that show and its truly groundbreaking innovations. However, both of us found this new book to be filled with new information, new discoveries, and new insights. Based on his exemplary research, Barry Kester takes us deep inside Rodgers and Hammerstein's creative process as they struggle to find a way to turn Ferenc Molnar's dark, fantastical play Lilium into their second Broadway musical collaboration. And central to this story is a dynamic woman, producer Teresa Helburn, who was the inspiring, driving force behind the show. In fact, there would have been no Carousel or Oklahoma without Teresa Helburn. This is the first of three episodes in which Barry will share with us not only these fascinating stories, but also his own unlikely and surprising tale of how he came to write this book. Here we go. Welcome, Barry Kester, to Broadway Nation. It's wonderful to have you here today to talk about your new book, Round in Circles, the story of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. 
Thank you, David, and thank you very much for inviting me onto your wonderful podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, even though Carousel seems to be a subject that I thought maybe had been covered very, very well in other places. You brought so many new things to the discussion that I found it a real page turner, actually. I'm delighted to hear that. I really am. How did you come to write this book? You don't come from the theater world originally. Is that true? That's absolutely true. I spent my working life as a chartered accountant in the UK, which is the equivalent of a CPA in America. I had my own practice, which kept me pretty busy for all my working life. By way of background, let's start at the beginning. I was born in 1944, which you may realize is in between Oklahoma and Carousel. The music of Rogers and Hammerstein and the Gershwins and Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, was the soundtrack to my childhood. And I just fell in love with it effectively from day one. Always a passion of mine. And as I got older, I wanted to find out more, not just about Broadway and the theatre, but about all the writers. So over the years, I've amassed a sizable library of books on the subject. So in 2010, I was kind of forced to retire. My wife was very ill and I had to seriously take care of her. I wanted something to occupy my mind and I decided I'd like to try and write a book. And they say when you start to write a book, write about something you know. I felt I knew quite a bit about musical theatre. Um, there was nothing about Carousel per se in my library, so I thought, why not? I mean, I look back on it now, it was absolute crazy, absolute <laughs> madness. I knew I would need to do a lot of research in America, and I knew I wasn't going to go to America anytime soon because of my wife's situation. I knew I would need the help of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. I had no idea whether I would get it. As it turns out, they've been absolutely wonderful. Off I went on this mad journey, very interrupted by the circumstances of my life. But here we are finally with a completed book. And what was your first exposure to Carousel? Do you remember the first time you saw or heard the music from Carousel? Uh, the first time I saw it was uh, the National Theatre's production in 1992, the music I grew up with. I can't point to any one pivotal event which made me pick that one out as my favourite more than any other. Well, and that was an incredible production. I saw the Broadway iteration of that. It's interesting from your book, Carousel actually was not a big hit in the UK prior to that. The original production did not run very long. It ran about 550-odd performances, yes. They were occupied Drury Lane from 1947 to 1953 with Oklahoma Carousel, South Pacific, and King and I, and that had the shortest run of them all. So those shows ran back-to-back -back at the Drury Lane continuously? For that period, Drury Lane was the Rogers and Hammerstein Theatre, yes. Phenomenal. I know that Agnes DeMille talks in an interview about reopening the Drury Lane after the Blitz with Oklahoma and what an amazing night that was. Apparently it was, yes. Yeah, she has quite a moving memory of that. So with that exposure to Carousel with the National Theatre production, Nick Heitner's production, how do you trace seeing it then to then deciding to write a book specifically about Carousel among all the musicals that you seem to have loved and been exposed to? Well, I had in my collection a couple of books on the history of Oklahoma. There were books on South Pacific, books on Sound of Music. I had books on My Fair Lady and West Side Story. Carousel was the one show at that time which uh, had no definitive history written of it. That made the decision for me in a way. 
I wasn't going to go where others had already trodden. So you talked about the challenges of researching the book, especially for the personal situation you were in. How Mm -hmm. did you overcome that? Because now you are embarking on this book and now you have to research it. How did you go about it? Started off by going through all the books I had, picking out key facts where I could find them. Obviously, the internet was another source. And what I found with that was, for example, looking up someone like uh, Lawrence Langner, the producer. He'd written an autobiography about which I had previously known nothing. So hunting through uh, secondhand bookshops here and online, eventually finding a copy of that. Another book to the collection, another source of material. The same with Teresa Helburn. Agnes de Mill has written a collection of four autobiographies, uh, obtained those, and so on and so on. Every time you go down one path, This was one of the difficulties as someone not trained in the discipline of university study and studying for a master's or a PhD. It's so easy to get sidetracked because if you love a subject and you find something interesting relating to that subject, off you go on that tangent and get distracted from your main purpose. Exactly. Avoiding those rabbit holes is one of the hardest things to do. But eventually you did come to America to do research. Is that true? I did, yes. My wife died in 2013. I was fortunate enough to find another wonderful partner. And after we moved and knocked our house about, I really got down to serious work. I suppose it was about 2017. I'd got to a stage by 2019 when I felt ready to come to the States. I booked myself a two-week stay, first of all going to the Library of Congress in Washington for a few days. That's where Oscar Hammerstein's papers are all stored and where Richard Rogers' music manuscripts are stored. Then to the Beinecke Library at Yale, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, where the Theatre Guild papers were. And then finally the Performing Arts Division of the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, where Richard Rogers' correspondence and Agnes de Mill's papers were also stored. So it was a, a fabulous trip. And I also met Ted Shapin of Rogers and Hammerstein organization. He was terrific. He didn't know me from Adam, but agreed to meet with me, spent some considerable time with me, showed me the RNH archives. It was a, a fabulous experience. And how long overall did it take you to write the book? Difficult to quantify. I mean, you could almost discount the time prior to 2017. So I suppose four or five years. I mean, it was not nine to five every day by any means. You start the book from a very interesting place, which is with a meeting of what you call or what they called, I guess, the Gloat Club. It's four members, two of whom, as you know, everybody knows, were Rogers and Hammerstein, and then two people that many people will not know much about at all. One of whom you just mentioned was Lawrence Langer, and the other was Teresa Helburn. Who were they? And describe what the Gloat Club was for us. The Gloat Club, beautiful name, um, <laughs> published by the four of them. They would have a regular lunch at Saudis every Thursday following the opening of Oklahoma to gloat about their remarkable triumph in producing Oklahoma. So Rogers and Hammerstein, pretty much everybody listening to this will know. Lawrence Langner and Teresa Helburn were the partners and directors of the Theatre Guild, the producing company. It was Teresa Helburn who approached Rogers and Hart, as it then was, to write a musical based on Green Grow the Lilacs, Lynn Riggs play, which became Oklahoma. Hart was not interested, wasn't able to work on that project. So Rogers called in Oscar Hammerstein and they produced Oklahoma. It was supposed to be a disaster. Everybody anticipated it was going to be a disaster, but as we know, it was anything but. So they set up the Glow Club to 
A, gloat, and B, realising what they had and that it was going to be around for a long time to discuss the finances, look at the returns, plan a touring production, plan an overseas production eventually after the war, a film at some time in the future, and so forth. So it was part gloat, part genuine business. Teresa Halpern, I think, is a very important person in the history of the American theater who hardly gets discussed at all. I very much enjoyed seeing her being so prominent in your book. As you just said, she was the impetus behind Oklahoma, and then she becomes the impetus behind Carousel as well. It's her idea to do these shows. Yes, she went through the back catalogue of plays that the Guild had produced. She found Greengrove Lilacs, first of all, and then there were a couple of plays that she considered as a follow-up. Lilium, Ferenc Molnar's play, was the one she settled on and the one that they eventually took to Rogers and Hammerstein in October 1943. And with Greengrove the Lilacs, this was sort of out of somewhat desperation of keeping the theatre guilt alive. That's right. They'd made a series of bad choices and were very seriously short of money. They were down to their last few thousand dollars. They realized that the only kind of production that would generate sufficient revenue would be a hit musical. That's why they went somewhat against Teresa Hilburn's instinct. One time she referred to musical theater as intellectual slumming. So it wasn't her ideal choice, but it was the only one that was going to save them. And they put it on for some $83,000. It's ironic that with her disdain for musicals, she becomes the sort of godmother of two of the greatest musicals of all time. Yeah, they had done Porgy and Bess in 1935, so that started to change her mind. The Theatre Guild had done Porgy and Bess. Theatre Guild produced Porgy and Bess, yes. So just describe a little more exactly what the Theatre Guild was. I don't know how it correlates to anything we have today. Uh, The Guild was established by Lawrence Langner and his wife, Armina Marshall, back in 1919 as a not-for-profit production organization to put on quality theatre. I think you still refer to it as legitimate um, (laughs) in the States. In other words, it was going to be Shakespeare, uh, new writers like George Bernard Shaw, Sidney Howard, Molnar, Maxwell Anderson, all this type of straight playwright. And they played an early part in the success of Richard Rogers because they built a new theatre in the early 1920s and they wanted to raise money for drapes to decorate the theatre. And they decided they would do that by giving young new writers and actors a chance to shine. And they arranged to put on at the Garrick Theatre for two nights only a musical review. And they chose Rogers and Hart who had failed dismally to get anywhere close to Broadway up to that point to write the songs. We'll have Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island too. It's lovely going through the zoo. Rogers and Hart duly came up with a score which included Manhattan and that set them on their path. So they played a very important part in American theatre. And had a long relationship with Richard Rogers. Well, he did a second edition of The Gaieties with Larry Hart, which produced Mountain Greenery, but then nothing until 
until Oklahoma. They went back. They certainly went back, yeah. One of the chapters you title Hellburn's Obsession, and mm. her obsession is with this play Lilium. First of all, tell us about Lilium. What was Lilium, and why was Teresa Hellburn so obsessed with it? Uh, Lilium was a play written by Hungarian playwright Ferenc Molnar. It had its premiere in 1909 in Budapest and failed rather dismally in its original Hungarian version. After the First World War, it was translated into German by an Austrian friend of Molnar's. That version was eventually translated into English for the Theatre Guild, who produced it in 1921 very successfully in that English version. By way of diversion, I am pretty convinced by what I have seen that the translation of that German version into English was actually carried out by Larry Hart. This is a fascinating sort of mind-blowing thing. I had actually heard this before. I think in some other book, somebody mentioned that possibility. But do you think Rodgers and Hammerstein knew that that translation that they're working from was written by Larry Hart? Impossible to know. Hart maintained it was his. His family maintained that he did it. Unless one could find an original piece of paper somewhere in his handwriting, it would be impossible to prove. But to me, the story seems entirely plausible. And he was known for doing German translations of other plays. Yeah, he was actually, on his mother's side, he was descended from Heinrich Hein which is an interesting fact. Yeah, he was an absolute polymath, Lorenz Hart. Just the irony of Rodgers and Hammerstein's potentially one of their greatest works, I'll put it that way, and Rogers' favorite work of his. Larry Hart being part of that is so complicated in a way with their relationship. It seems impossible that if they knew it, somebody wouldn't have talked about it. Or it wouldn't have been in a letter somewhere. You wouldn't have discovered it somewhere along the way. It seems unbelievable that they could keep their mouth shut about that to a certain extent, even yeah. <laughs> I, agree. I agree. The story of Lilium is very much the story of Carousel. Lilium is set in Budapest, so there are no mill workers. Julie was um, a housemaid rather than a mill worker, but the basic story is exactly the same as that in Carousel. Anybody who read Lilium, who knew Carousel, would recognize the story at once. Beat for beat, Hammerstein stuck very closely to the story of Lilium. The ending excluded to a certain extent. The, the ending excluded, obviously. Let's talk a little bit more about Teresa Helburn, though. She is obsessed with this play, and now, after the brilliant success of Oklahoma, she's looking for the next Rodgers and Hammerstein Theater Guild collaboration. And she again goes back through the list of plays that they already controlled the rights to and comes up with Lillian. Lillian was very much on her mind because in 1937, she met Kurt Weil, who knew all about Lillian and had himself approached Molnar for permission to turn it into a musical. Molnar turned him down flat, but Kurt Weil had serious discussions with Theresa Helburn about doing a musical version of Lilium. In fact, just going back to Larry Hart, he even considered Larry Hart as being a possible lyricist for his version of the play. But as I say, Molnar turned them down flat, and that seemed to be an end to it. But from 37 onwards, I think Theresa Helburn never let it go, never let it out of her mind. Kurt Weill was not the only composer that Molnar had turned down for adapting Lilium. No, he turned down Giacomo Puccini. He turned down Franz Lehar. There were rumors that Gershwin was interested in doing it as well. Fascinating. 
In your opening scene, Teresa Helburn pitches the idea of Lilium to Rogers and Hammerstein as their follow-up to Oklahoma. And what is their reaction? The way it's described by Lawrence Langner in his book is very theatrical. They turn it down absolutely flat. But I don't believe they were entirely sincere in turning it down because what they did agree to was a meeting on December the 7th, 1943 to discuss the matter further. And when they arrived at that meeting, it was very apparent that they'd both given the subject a lot of thought. So although they had said no in a rather theatrical, dramatic fashion, I don't think they really meant no. That's not to say that there weren't several concerns that they had. And Barry and I will be back to talk about those concerns right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And what was their hesitation? What were they concerned about? First of all, they didn't like the setting. They didn't want to do anything based in Hungary. Oscar Hammerstein said it immediately gave him a mental image of gypsy violins playing and so forth. 
a setting more familiar to operetta at the turn of the century than a modern-day musical. There were political issues as well. Who knew what the status of Hungary would be after the war? They didn't like the fantasy element. How do you put that into a musical? And I think the biggest problem that they foresaw was what they always refer to as the tunnel, a dark, depressing story set in drab interiors. Although they were moving away from the musical comedies of the 1930s, the fact that they grew up in a musical comedy environment was still in their minds and they couldn't see it working as a musical with that kind of gloom and doom dominating the piece. And even just from a technical standpoint, even today, it's hard to make a musical fly in interior settings. Musicals almost always happen outdoors, or if you're inside, you have to take the walls away and make sure that you're not confined in a tight space. Kudos to Lerner and Lowe for my fair lady for conquering that. Exactly. Yes. The other issue that Richard Rogers was particularly concerned about after his experience with Pal Joey was having an anti-hero, which Billy Bigelow certainly is in Carousel, because he's received a lot of flack. I remember Brooke Atkinson's review of Pal Joey when he came out with that famous line, can you draw sweet water from a foul well? Much to praise about Pal Joey, but he hated the character of Joey. And so that was another concern of Rogers. So all those elements affected their thinking. And you talk us through in the book the way they overcome these issues that they have. Talk about that process and those solutions that they discover that allow them to then continue with the project? Well, first of all, let's talk about what they liked. If you read the minutes of uh, that first meeting in December 1943, Hammerstein spoke about the first scene with Billy and Julie and how beautifully it was written and how it would be wonderfully set to music, culminating with a kiss with the lilac blossoms falling, which is exactly what we saw in the finished musical. And Rogers, from the very beginning, saw that it would be a terrific challenge for him. He immediately envisaged an orchestra twice as big as anything that you'd seen on Broadway up till then. And he also suggested the soliloquy at that very first meeting, Billy singing about having a son and then maybe having a daughter instead. It was all there. So there were those positives which kept them going on. And that's the famous bench scene is the first thing you were talking about, what Sondheim calls the most important development in the modern musical. He did indeed, yeah. And what's fascinating is it's almost exactly taken line by line from Molnar. Listen, I don't need you or anybody else to help me. Huh? I mean, I got to figure it out for myself. I mean, we're not important. What are we? We're a couple of specks and nothing. Look up there. There's a hell of a lot of stars in the sky. And the sky's so big, the sea looks small. And too little people, you and I, we don't count at all. I have type them out together and yes it's incredible it is incredible how close the two scenes are you're a funny kid i don't ever remember meeting a girl like you hey are you trying to get me to marry you no well, what's putting it into my head then yeah 
Yeah, you're different, all right. I don't know what it is. You, you look up at me with that little kid's face, like... Like you trusted me. It changed the dialogue from the Hungarian setting to the New England setting, but apart from that, almost identical. And that change in setting is one of the things that allows them to discover their version of the show. That was the key. Before that, one of the uh, treasures that I discovered amongst Hammerstein's papers, they considered moving it to New Orleans at first. And some of Hammerstein's sketches of scenes set in New Orleans were quite remarkable. And he was looking for comedy. Again, going back to what I said earlier, couldn't break away from this desire to have comedy in the show, even though it wasn't really suited to comedy. Funny scenes were in a witchcraft shop with skulls falling on someone's head. So they go down that path a ways, and why do they abandon? Hammerstein went down that path a little way, but then he remembered that one of his failures in the 1930s was a show called Sunny River, which was set in New Orleans, and he decided, no, he didn't want to get into all the New Orleans dialogue and so forth, and rejected that. Richard Rogers suggested New England, and that was that. It all fell into place. I love that quote you had in there from Hammerstein, where he thought it was a ridiculous idea to set it in New England for a day or so, and then he decided it was good. I misquoted it there, but that's yeah. the gist of it. And away we went, I think he said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think was an intentional pun on the original title of Oklahoma, which was right. away we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So as they're figuring this out, and as we know, in the end result, Carousel is groundbreaking in many, many ways. It is a giant step forward, even from Oklahoma, I contend that the golden age of Broadway, and this is nitpicky, but the golden age of Broadway starts with Carousel, not with Oklahoma. Once Carousel opened, it was clear then to everybody that this was the only way to do a Broadway musical anymore. You had to get on this bandwagon. You had to embrace the musical play and move forward. If they hadn't been able to have a second success, Oklahoma might have been somewhat of a one-off the way Showboat had been. In. But this is when it just sort of locks in. This is the new system. But what I'm interested in is they actually decide to do something groundbreaking. This is not an accident that happens. They very consciously are wanting to do something new and different and important. What was in their minds at this time? I think the overall thought in their minds was their concern that whatever they did to follow Oklahoma was going to suffer by inevitable comparison with Oklahoma. So they really wanted to get as far away from the Oklahoma, I was going to say formula, I'm not sure they did that, but they wanted to be as different from Oklahoma as they possibly could. They were also aware that the success of Oklahoma not only brought considerable financial reward, but it gave them considerable power. And I think it also gave them considerable confidence. So they were able to look at something far more challenging than was Green Grow the Lilacs uh, and Oklahoma. One of the quotes you have from a critic, and I can't remember who it was, talks about the Oklahoma formula was getting tired. This was, I think, was in a review of Carousel. It was, yes. It was interesting to me because, of course, this is only their second show, but Oklahoma had been so influential that other shows had opened in between that were mimicking Oklahoma to a certain extent or following the path of Oklahoma. Yes. As Hammerstein pointed out in a later interview, it was not only going to be 
their second show that would suffer from comparison with Oklahoma, but every show that opened on Broadway thereafter by all the other uh, songwriters and composers out there, everybody was going to be compared with Oklahoma. And with Carousel, they're not only following Oklahoma, they're following Bloomer Girl and other shows that had come in between in the Oklahoma model. Yes. They had inadvertently inspired, I guess. In terms of Richard Rogers, he is also looking to do something new with this show. And you talk about his possible influence from Gershwin and Porgy and Bess as being maybe long simmering, but coming to the surface here. Ah, yes. I have this theory, and it's nothing more than my personal theory. But the letter that Rogers wrote to Gershwin the day after Porgy and Bess opened, in which Rogers said to Gershwin, and I quote, you licked me, tells me a lot about Rogers' state of mind. They were good friends. In fact, Gershwin had played the entire score to Rogers in Rogers' apartment prior to the show opening. And a little while after that, Rogers took piano lessons with Gershwin's teacher, studying Brahms and Schumann and so forth. And I think looking, even before Oklahoma, but looking at the music that Rogers wrote with heart in the late 1930s, leading up to Oklahoma, I think there was a change in the style of Rogers' writing, which shows greater ambition. And you quote Mary Rogers. Mary Rogers agrees with you on that. I'm not sure she agrees about the ambition. But she agrees that those lessons had an impact on his writing. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that he went with Carousel was he saw here a show or a story equivalent to Porgy and Bess. Oklahoma wasn't, but Carousel certainly is, which gave him a chance to really try out everything that he had learned. He abandoned all Broadway convention. You look at the score of Carousel, there are very few 32-bar AABA melodies in it. He's moving far away from Tin Pan Alley with this. Far away from Tin Pan Alley. Didn't lose any of the beauty of his melodic writing, but moved far away from Tin Pan Alley. In terms of Teresa Helburn, she seems so prominent in the first half of the book and then sort of drops out in the second half. Was there a reason? Did that happen in life? Is that a fair perception? I think it's just that nobody recorded anything. There's no correspondence. The Guild files for Carousel are full of activity in getting the rights, getting it all set up. But there's very little once they get into the rehearsal stage and thereafter. So I'm sure she was as busy as ever. I'm absolutely certain of it. She would not let go until, well, not even after opening night. It's just that there's nothing, once the production is established, all the work fell on the writers and the creatives. That's what I assumed. And I wasn't what her circumstances were, but she was certainly not someone to step aside from being involved with the show. Teresa Helburn did not step aside. I find that the Broadway musical is filled with dynamic women who just have not been brought to the surface and remembered and talked about enough. It's not that women weren't there. They were there in prominence. They've just gotten lost in the shuffle for many reasons. One of the fascinating aspects of your book, and obviously came out of your research, is their process of developing this first treatment, is what you might call it today, in terms of like a movie script of the show. And you actually actually include that in the appendix of your book. Talk about that treatment, how it was developed, and how it influenced the show that came after. 
Yeah, the outline, it's, it's there in the Library of Congress, a four-page typewritten document getting a bit faded now. During the summer of 1944, the Rogers family would move in with the Hammerstein family into the Hammerstein's farm in Doylestown in Pennsylvania for working weekends. By that time, Oscar Hammerstein had done a lot of research, and I think it's important to talk about his research. He wanted everything to be accurate, and with the help of his daughter Alice acquired a vast collection of books about life in New England during the late 19th century. And he used these books. He got character names from some. Some were fiction, some were non-fiction. He used names from the books to give the characters, names like Bigelow, Carrie, Pipperidge, and so forth, Enoch Snow. He used it for the dialogue, for common sayings, to make sure that his dialogue would be absolutely right. And some of these are authors like Harriet Beecher Stowe and authors that we know that he's drawing from the they're not lifting anything directly, but using it as the building blocks of what he's going to do. Absolutely, yes. He got the idea for the clam bake, for example, from these books. This was a real nice clam bake. We're glad we as Barry recounts in his book, the lyric for This Was a Real Nice Clam Bake was adapted from a recipe for a traditional New England clam bake that Hammerstein found in a book called Mainstays of Maine, sort of a combined travelogue and recipe book by Robert P.T. Coffin. This is what Coffin had to say about a clam bake. A good New England cook uses no book. Put in what you think is right. Cod's head chowder? Catch the cod and cook them, still flapping in an iron kettle. Onions, salt, and pork. Cook till the fish begin to flake apart. Split sticks or bayberry and clamp them on clamshells. These are the only proper spoons for this chowder. After that comes the lobsters. They've been broiling on the coals. Rake them out, split them down the back, pour in the butter, salt, and pepper. After the lobsters come the clams. Cook these in rockweed thrown over coals of driftwood. First come codfish chowder, cooked in iron kettles, onions floating on the top, curling up in petals, broad in ribbons of salty pork, and all New England trees, and lapped them all up with a clamshell, tied onto a bayberry stick. So using the benefit of that research, Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers would sit down and adapt the story of Lilium to make it more suitable for New England, getting rid of the dark interiors that we refer to earlier, using a sequence like the clambake sequence, which would be outside, devising the June sequence at Nettie Fowler's Cafe to create something much more appropriate for a musical. What I thought was so fascinating about that outline is that there are elements like June is busting out all over that are right there already realized and then other descriptions of possible song spots and possible ideas that are very different. You can sort of see how they got from there to where they got to, but are in process at that moment, not fully clear to them. There was um, one reference as a possible song title, which was something about, I'll bring you sardines for tea or something. I can't remember the exact words. And I thought, what on earth is that? It turned out it was to be the introduction to when the children are asleep, but it took a bit of working out, I have to say. Yeah, uh, some of them were mystifying. 
especially when you know where they're going to go, which, of course, they didn't know at the time. No, no. They also brought in a character that wasn't in Lilium, a chap called Dwight, who played the guitar as a possible alternative suitor to Carrie Pipperidge. But they got rid of him fairly early on. They realized that it was too close to the story of Oklahoma, the love triangle between Will Parker and Edouane and Ali Akim. Yeah, they're probably looking for a dancing element and decided that was too close. One of the fascinating things, and you go into this in some detail when they get to out of town, but it's right there in this treatment is the scene when Billy goes to heaven, to the other side, wherever it is he goes, and we meet Mr. and Mrs. God, basically, which is a truly fascinating element in this story that eventually will get taken away. I have to say, I read that scene for the first time in the Library of Congress, and it completely wowed me. I think it is a beautiful, beautiful scene. So much sympathy emanating from these two characters. I can only assume it didn't work in New Haven because of the timing, because the country was still at war at that time. Funnily enough, there was a production of Carousel at London's Regent's Park Theatre last year, and Tim Sheeder, the director, was given permission by the Rogers and Hammerstein organisation to substitute the original scene for the clothesline scene in the play. And I, I, th- I thought it worked well. And I'd love to see it used more often. So describe the scene. What's the essence of the scene as it compared to the Starkeeper scene that we know from the finished product? First of all, en route to heaven, in the very first treatment, there is a dance sequence, the second act ballet, which shows Louise's life from birth to the age of 15. And the way Oscar Hammerstein and Agnes DeMille devised this ballet, it ended up lasting for about 45 minutes. In the original production, the first night overran considerably. It lasted about four hours, and that was one of the major factors. And Billy gets to heaven at the end of that 15 years. The journey takes him 15 years to get from earth to heaven, although it only seems like an instant. And he's confronted by this elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. God, and they interrogate him as to why he did what he did. Was he sorry? Did he regret it? And much of the dialogue remains unchanged. I guess it was the style, the interrogation, the formality didn't sit well with a wartime audience, many of whom would have had sons and husbands and so forth, still serving and still facing potential death in the forces. Whereas, as rewritten with the Starkeeper hanging out stars on a washing line, much less formal, much more jolly, much more sympathetic type of character. Although he had an element of sternness about him, it was much easier, a much more friendly, less threatening take on heaven for a watching audience. And what was the reaction to Mrs. God? Because uh, Hammerstein seems enthusiastic about making this point, that there's a feminine element to God, that there's a female God. Yes. As I say elsewhere in the book, Hammerstein lost his mother, I think he was 15 at the time, and it had a profound effect on him. Uh, He loved his mother dearly. And in one way or another, she appears in a lot of his musicals. Aunt Ella in Oklahoma, Cousin Nettie in Carousel is probably a more similar figure, Lady Tyang in King and I. 
But yes, he was very conscious of the importance of women in society. And do you think part of the audience's non-response to this scene or negative response to the scene was partly because of this sort of blasphemous vision of the deities? Sure, that probably made a factor. I think it was more the austerity and the severity of the scene. But I wouldn't rule out a little bit of the blasphemy, as you put it, yeah. It was certainly forward thinking, as Roger Hammerstein so often are. I would have been fascinated to see the production that included it. That would be really interesting to see sometime. Yeah. Uh, Hammerstein said in a letter to a friend later that the whole idea was a terrible mistake. But I'm not sure he believed that. You quote somebody saying that it suffered from the Calvinist audience of New Haven or something like that. That was Agnes DeMille. Yeah. So she regretted this change as well. Yeah, she did. And when we return next week, Barry will share what happened when Agnes DeMille joined the creative team as we continue our discussion of his new book, Round in Circles, the story of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. This was a real nice Lobsters out of the driftwood fire They sizzled and crackled and sputtered a song Fitting for an angel's choir Fitting for an angel's, fitting for an angel's Fitting for an angel's choir We slid them down the back and peppered them good And doused them in melted butter Then we tore away the claws and cracked them with our teeth Cause we weren't in the mood to putter Fitting for an angel's, fitting for an angel's Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. This was a real nice and we all had a real If you enjoy this clam bake, I invite you to become a patron of Broadway Nation. For a contribution of just $7 a month, you can receive exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And in fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the podcast version. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host Albert Evans that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot tech. 
or you can find the link in the show notes to this episode or in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, which I also invite you to join. And now it's my great pleasure to welcome our newest patrons, Kelly Allen, Juan J. Neumeister, Ruth Oberg, and Alejandro Membreno. Thank you all for your very generous support. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.